From News 10 in Sacramento, this is the Capital Connection podcast for Friday, February 21st. I'm John Myers, political editor for News 10, along with Anthony York, political writer for the Los Angeles Times. And it's such a leisurely Friday. I mean, hey, nothing going on. No, no, quiet day here in Sacramento, situation normal. Yeah, just beautiful, just, you know, I've had all this time to just rest today and think. And, uh, and I, if, if I had the, um, the special effects sound, it would be the needle going across the record right then. And mm-hmm. eh, nope, not so much. It turned out to be a heck of a day. Um, so it's actually, if you, I think if we step back and we haven't had a couple of podcasts here, uh, apologies to you podcast listeners, uh, partly because of my schedule and just partly because of... Um, you know, my, my schedule. The lack of rain, right? Yes, Let's right. blame it on that. Sure. Uh, blame it on the rain. <laughs> yeah, but certainly last week with the president in Fresno, that kind of uh, mucked up uh, my world of reporting. But enough apologies. Um, it has, if you step back, been uh, uh, quite a week in terms of news items. And we'd have to start with the Calderon story. And so we will. Let's let's talk about that since that's Friday's news, that uh, the indictments down against Ron Calderon, state senator from Los Angeles County, 24 indictments that could uh, get him 400 years in federal prison. I don't know why we do those in all those stories, but, but you know, I guess it's the, what, the gravity of it, of the number of years that you could serve in the maximum sentence. But You never know. I mean, science is evolving, so uh, you never know. <laughs> That's a different podcast. But charges, uh, indictments against Ron Calderon, against his brother, former Assemblyman Tom Calderon, um, a guilty plea from uh, Southern California health care executive Michael Drobot in, in connection with allegations of uh, major workers' compensation insurance fraud and a long investigation there. All of the shoes are the one big collective shoe that we've been waiting that we thought would drop in this case all came down with a thud at midday on Friday with that uh, press conference from the U.S. attorney in Los Angeles. Uh, the political ramifications of this are, are just still rippling out, and they will ripple out, fair to say, you think? They are. I mean, certainly it's just big, big news. I mean, you know, having a sitting lawmaker arrested or uh, indicted, I guess he's, he's scheduled to turn himself in on Monday from what we're hearing, but, uh, but actually indicted for corruption charges. I mean, it's been decades. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, I mean, look, this thing has sent shockwaves through Sacramento since, uh, since the FBI was, was raiding the Capitol, um, you know, just a, a few months ago. And, and, um, you know, we, we've seen this, these investigations carry on. Remember the, uh, the, the, the feds were looking at, uh, Senate leader Don Parada for months and months and months and nothing ever happened. There never was an arrest. There never was an indictment handed down. Um, this is obviously uh, very different, and uh, you know, and it's it's the biggest political story uh, in the state. It's uh, it's uh, you know, political corruption is always big news, and this is um, you know, twenty four counts is is I mean, this is serious stuff about against you know both uh, a, a sitting state senator and a former a former state assemblyman. And and you know, when you look at the indictment, uh, there is. Uh, it lines up very closely with the uh, leaked affidavit, the sealed affidavit that was supposed to be sealed back in October, the FBI affidavit, about the allegations, about the way things went down. Uh, a couple of new factoids we learned on Friday, and this was some of these were uh, actually in a different court document filed in Sacramento because people who've been watching this Calderon saga will know that uh, the senator's defense attorney, 
um, Mark Garagos, who's known for lots of celebrity trials, uh, Garagos filed a complaint in federal court alleging that the U.S. attorneys were the ones who had leaked all this to Al Jazeera America uh, back in uh, late 2013. Anyway, so um, federal officials responded to the Garagos accusations in court also on Friday. That was a Sacramento filing. And in that one, we learned that in May of 2013, so about a month before the raid on the Capitol offices, um, uh, Ron Calderon uh, supposedly flew to Las Vegas to the Bellagio Hotel where he thought he was meeting with the Hollywood movie executives who I think at that meeting then said, hey, by the way, we're the FBI. Uh, cue the needle scratching across the record again. Um, and, um, and from there, they talked about cooperation. There was a discussion about wearing a wire. Uh, apparently, according to that document, uh, Ron Calderon did wear an un- a hidden recording device uh, briefly, but it didn't really pick up anything of substance with some person, and that some person's person, never right. identified in this. Right. And, uh, and then a month later, uh, after a series of conversations, they claim Calderon stopped uh, cooperating, and they executed the raid on the Capitol offices. And from there, of course, we know where the story's picked up in terms of what we found out later about the long investigation of the undercover agent and the uh, uh, health company executive, Michael Drobot, and accusations that went back years before, I mean, at least back uh, three years plus. Uh, and that's where you kind of get uh, Tom Calderon and the allegations against him and all of this. But clearly, uh, Ron Calderon sat on this information, according to this document, for a month, knowing that the feds were on to him. Right. And I've talked to people at the Capitol here in these last few hours, and it doesn't sound like anybody knew that. I mean, everybody seemed genuinely surprised when those agents showed up uh, in the Capitol hallways in June. And so um, you never know what is percolating behind um, uh, closed doors, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was interesting. You know, if you, if you think back, remember... Um, uh, Calderon's attorney made a, a big point when when uh, when he filed that that claim uh, uh, about the leak uh, that uh, you know he returned that that Calderon had returned a wire and and I don't remember exactly right. what the document said but the implication was that he was asked to wear this wire and that he and that he that he in fact had refused and and according to the documents that were released today he actually did record a couple of conversations with an individual and I think there's speculation about who that might be or, you know, clearly running around. But but it was made clear in the documents that the individual was not a target, that the conversations that were recorded were, um, you know, never never amounted to anything, and, and uh, it only happened twice. And then, as you say, you know, uh, Senator Calderon re- refused to cooperate and, and the raid ensued. But it, it was a sort of a little bit of... Uh, Filling in of the gaps and a little a, a little backfilling of, of of what we didn't know from from the previous documents, um, you know, Drobot copped a plea and admitted to paying bribes to Calderon, um, and so that seems to be sort of the the top of the food chain here in this investigation seems to be um, Senator Calderon and and you know and and and, and what the what the ultimate uh, fallout from this is and certainly for for Calderon personally and and for the political scene in Sacramento um, is still unknown, but obviously not a good day for uh, for the Calderon family. No, and 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 frankly, not a good day for the legislature because, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, and a lot of people have talked about, these kinds of accusations play into the worst fears or. Um, 
or cynicism of the public about what happens sure. in Sacramento. The U.S. attorney made it clear that there are good people in office. He said that in his event in Los Angeles today. But nonetheless, this kind of, you know, even if it's just uh, allegations, though certainly there's an indictment and, and, you know, and one Calderon brother has, you know, turned himself into authorities and the Senator Ron Calderon uh, apparently on Monday, but all of this kind of blackens everybody in a certain way. And now you know we're going to get the next drumbeat here very soon about what happens to Ron Calderon in this time period. Uh, we do know that members of the Democratic Caucus in the state Senate uh, talked via conference call here on Friday about the Calderon situation. Uh, you know you're going to get the drumbeat about expulsion or other kinds of things next week. Uh, nice little historical fact. It was... Um, almost this exact time in February in 1905 that the last time state senators were expelled from uh, the Capitol here in Sacramento, and that was for bribery. Uh, there were four state senators. There's my little uh, factoid here. Oh, but go. I mean, uh, you know you're going to get that drumbeat next week. People are going to ask those questions. Then someone's going to link it to the questions surrounding State Senator Rod Wright. Very different case, but a man who is facing um, uh, legal charges and a jury actually that uh, delivered a guilty verdict against him in a completely unrelated case. But nonetheless, all of this kind of gets rolled into that, you know, what is the Senate doing? What is the legislature doing to uh, right itself in the eye of the public? Right. Although, you know, if the, if the governing principle is innocent until proven guilty, uh, I'm not sure what an indictment changes in that calculus. I mean, these allegations have been out there now for months. I mean, since this affidavit was leaked, months ago and first aired on Al Jazeera America. And, and the Senate has taken action, removing Senator, Senator Calderon from all of his committee assignments, and, uh, and, but, but, I'm, but not voting to expel him. I'm not sure why, uh, why this would change anything if he still has not been convicted of anything. He's just been accused and, and, and indicted. I mean, certainly that's an escalation. but. But legally, I'm not sure it's it's significantly difficult or or different. Excuse me. Um, but again, I, I mean, I, th I think it's true that these are not merely legal questions; these are political questions. And and um, you know, a lot of a lot of members of the Senate are are up for election, whether it's for re-election or running for other statewide offices or or Congress. And so um, that does. I'm sure that will all factor into the equation as uh, as uh, Democrats in the Senate and. And all senators decide what uh, what will become of Ron Calderon in the short term. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I think the, the you're right about the legality here. Not that I'm a lawyer, but the reality is that uh, the Senate President Pro Tem Daryl Steinberg made it clear when he stripped and he and the Rules Committee stripped Ron Calderon of his committee assignments that these allegations, these charges, go to the heart of being a legislator and the public's trust in that uh, bribery and money laundering as the. Uh, federal indictment lays out versus the case against Senator Wright is about where he lived, whether he lived in the district and things. And so these right. are th these are uh, a very different kind of politically, publicly palpable, angry kinds of accusations. But right, we, we don't know where it's going to go. Obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time on this one uh, next week. Let's talk about the other two things that we were going to highlight here on this podcast uh, uh, briefly on this Friday afternoon. I'm still working on the evening news on the Calderon story. Um, and that is, uh, so the Calderon story was a surprise, and I think that's one of the themes for me for this week is that, you know, the, the surprise news. The other one that was a surprise, um, we're kind of going back through the week uh, somewhat chronologically here, bear with us, folks, um, was the Thursday news 
uh, out of the Senate President Pro Tem, Daryl Steinberg, and this idea of a carbon tax and his proposal to place a new carbon tax on fuels in California beginning next year that would be somewhere around 15 cents a gallon, would bring in about three and a half billion bucks, and do that instead of bringing fuels under California's cap and trade program, which is supposed to happen next year, and then use part of the money as a, as a earned income tax credit for uh, working class and low income Californians, uh, boy, you couldn't take two um, more volatile issues, could you not, and put them together, um, you know, gas prices and oil and taxes. Uh, in one measure. I mean, if you wanted to find people to knock something down, put environmental stuff and tax stuff all in one measure and see what happens. Yeah, and the political lines on this one are interesting. I mean, you have a lot of environmentalists who don't like the proposal, who like the existing cap-and-trade system, and um, which will be expanded to cover gasoline and other fuels on January 1st. Um, and so, you know, we saw Steinberg getting a lot of pushback from um, from a lot of different sectors, from some Democrats as well as some Republicans. Uh, the governor's office merely pointed uh, merely uh, pointed reporters to the governor's earlier statements about taxes and saying this was not the time for, for new taxes. And even though um, some in the Senate Democratic Caucus and, and some staff in the, in the Senate was, was trying to, to say this was not a tax increase, that this was in some ways could be viewed as a tax cut. And uh, I will leave that uh, in the eye of the, of the beholder <laughs> there. I think that's a, uh, that is one interpretation. Let's just leave it at that. Um, bravo, bravo on that interpretation. Yeah, in yeah well, but, uh, but uh, you know, and, and it's interesting. I mean, look, the, Steinberg is, is in his last few months as leader of the Senate, and it's just sort of an interesting uh, marker to put down. Uh, Look, he's had bills that have that have died before. He's had bills basically die die in committee in his own house before, and and I think that um, the early money on this proposal going forward is 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 uh, probably on the no side. I mean, I think that this is this uh, will take this is a a big lift politically for Steinberg to move it not only through the Senate but through the Assembly and ultimately uh, to try to get the governor's signature. I think it's a an uphill battle to say the least. And the part I found most interesting about this one was uh, the pro tem's characterization of what will happen absent his plan. Again, uh, cap and trade is the kind of the hallmark part of the 2006 climate change law, AB 32. And we've been using cap and trade now for a little over a year in terms of uh, a cap on carbon emissions for some uh, operations in California. Static emissions, I believe, is, is one of the terms you would use. And then trading those carbon allowances on a market and the money goes back to the state, et cetera, et cetera. Well, next year, they, they plan to bring transportation fuels into that cap-and-trade system. And the business community and other critics of AB 32 or critics of the cap-and-trade process have long said that Californians have no idea what kind of sticker shock is coming to them in the form of gas prices and things when they get in the cap-and-trade system. Um, some environmentalists and others have not, you know, either have disagreed with that or said that's not really the whole story or whatever. Here you have one of the most powerful Democrats in California accepting or at least promoting what the business community's position has been, is that the cap-and-trade system for transportation fuels is going to be too expensive and a bad deal for Californians. That's a very powerful tool now that I think that they could move forward with 
um, regardless of this measure as uh, as 2015 comes into play here. I mean, it's a it's almost like you know it's a great um, testimonial from a guy on the other side who's normally on the other side of the fight. And and you wonder if this might even become an issue in some statewide races in 2014, right? If there is a quote unquote new gas tax. Uh, set to go into effect in 2015. Uh, maybe the political power is uh, of that of that threat is uh, is diluted a little bit because there was some interpretation over what impact cap and trade would have on gasoline prices. But um, but you know does that become an issue in the governor's race? I mean what what is Jerry Brown's position on that? You know he's been so um, uh, aggressive on, on climate change issues. Uh, and yet holding the line on things like an oil severance tax and other other uh, oil-related taxes, you know, does that become an issue? Uh, you know, what is the governor's position on on this scheduled expansion of cap-and-trade and, and the impact that might have? Again, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that we've, we've heard the last of this issue, um, regardless well, of, of the fate of, of the pro temp's proposal. And certainly, just quickly, certainly because the pro tem wrapped it in the issue of income inequality, which you and I have talked about a lot, talked about the impact on uh, the most low-income Californians who have to drive their cars, and that's why he wanted to do the earned income tax credit, or wants to, I should say, up to $75,000 of income to get some of the money back from the increase in gas prices, money he says they wouldn't get back if the fuels are under cap and trade clearly invoking this very um, politically front and center um, kind of issue uh, in the middle of this discussion. And I do think that, you know, could raise another issue about, you know, cap and trade. It, you know, it's painful to get to climate change um, proposals, but is the pain being borne by people who can least afford to bear it? So I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, indeed. Indeed we will. So, uh, and, and then, and then uh, last but not least, all the way back in our uh, way back time clock, feels like, mm-hmm. feels like the beginning of the week was a long time ago, the uh, emergency legislation from uh, the governor and legislative leaders on the drought, um, a faster track of bond money to be spent on some local projects, some uh, short-term uh, food and housing assistance for farm workers impacted because they can't bring in a crop. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, this kind of, in a way, uh, goes along with what the president did in Fresno uh, last Friday. Um, it does some help. Nobody says it's a bad idea. Everybody says maybe some people say we should do more. Uh, what, what did you yeah. say out of that? I, you know, I, I think um, short term, the impact is sort of questionable. I think politically it's important for for politicians to be seen as, as, as trying to do something. But I think it really underscores a couple of things. Number one, um, how, how little planning has been done to date for, uh, for this drought, and also what a low priority it was. I mean, the fact that we have these, these bonds that were all passed in 2006, right, and that we have tens and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of bonds that right. are unsold that right. have not been moved out the door. Um, and, and, you know, you talk to the Department of Water Resources, and they say, hey, look, I mean, even now, even now, you know, there's been this, this push to accelerate the spending of upwards of $500 million with the bond funds. Even now, when you're talking about, quote, unquote, shovel-ready projects, we've, only, we've got about 30 to $40 million worth that are ready to go uh, because, because it just hasn't been a priority. For, uh, for state lawmakers to spend this money, and for, for a number of different reasons, right? I mean, you can say there was a reluctance to boost our, our bond indebtedness and in, uh, in uh, times of, of, of budget crisis. But, um, but you know, but I, I, I just think it, it's, it's 
fascinating and sort of pulling the curtain back on that, and that none of us, I mean, not the media, and a lot of, and a lot of people in state government apparently were not paying attention to it, and it, it sort of illustrates how reactionary we all can be, um, how right. we don't act until there is a crisis, and, and, and in the short term, um, by then it's often too late to mitigate some of the impacts, and so I think the question, as much as, as trying to deal with the current crisis is, how are we going to prepare ourselves to deal for the next one, and what lessons do we learn from this crisis so that uh, if the drought persists or if another drought comes after that, how, uh, how is the state and, uh, and, and other localities, how are we all prepared to deal with that? And, and I think the other thing is just fascinating out of this is that, you know, this was, maybe this isn't completely fair, but what came out of that event to me and looking at the packages, it was kind of low-hanging fruit. I mean, these were things that, you know, we could do, we should do, let's do them. Uh, and I just wonder, the longer the weather stays the way it is, are we going to have a problem with that narrative? Is that going to be enough? Is there going to be a push to do more to maybe finally crack open some of the most uh, difficult, ugly things in this entire um, discussion on water? The less it rains, the uglier it's going to get. <laughs> okay, maybe so, maybe so. All right, well, let's, let's put it to there because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the uh, day job of television for now. Uh, but we'll keep tracking on a lot of these. I think, I think a lot of these narratives we've talked about today, we're going we're gonna to hit a lot over the next few weeks and months. Uh, that's Anthony York from the Los Angeles Times. I'm John Myers from News 10. Sorry for the missed podcast, folks, but as always, thanks for listening.